We are rolling through Genesis, and it has, I don't know about for you, but uh, uh, Genesis for me has just come alive in an unusually new uh, way. It's a book I think all of us are familiar with, um, but you know, we, we look at it in these individual flannel board vignettes, or it, do we decide, are we uh, day age or literal day, and, and as opposed to, which those are all fine, but as opposed to actually figuring out in, in each storyline, what is God saying to us, and how does that apply to us, and, and the fact that God hasn't changed. You know, we, we began, as we've developed, we've got this theme, God over all, but remember one of the first things that we ever um, emphasized when we began this series about 300 years ago, it feels like, um, was that we're going to discover that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are the same. And so many times there can be this artificial delineation between law and grace. And I think as we're discovering in the book of Genesis that that is artificial. God is and always has been and always will be a God of grace. And we are so kind to, uh, God is so kind to us. So, well, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 32. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Our title is What's in a Name? And if you would, join me in prayer. Lord, thank you so much that we can be together today. Thank you for the change in the seasons. And Lord, thank you for heat. Lord, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are facing more cold than this without the heat we have. And Lord, we just don't want to take, we never want to take our salvation for granted. But Lord, even the benefits and blessings you give us, we don't want to take those small things for granted as well. And be with our brothers and sisters, particularly those that are in a cold prison cell, shivering in the cold with no heat for their faith. Lord, comfort them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you're finding Genesis 32, let me kind of set the table. Jacob, Jacob's now about roughly, give or take, a day away from entering the promised land. He's probably only about 13 miles from crossing over, but he's got a large entourage of livestock and servants. So he could be about a day away. And what a contrast. When he left the promised land 20 years ago, he was literally running for his life. He only had a staff, literally a staff. That's all he had, he says, to lean on. He was penniless, and he was in search of a wife at his Uncle Laban's place. So he was hoping to find a wife as he was heading to Uncle Laban, running for his life from Esau. Now, contrast, 20 years later. He has, remember he was looking for one wife. Unfortunately, as we discovered, he has two sister wives and two concubines. But in spite of him, God has continued to bless him. And he has 11 sons and one daughter. What a contrast. Now, a, now he has the same staff, but he's got livestock and slaves, immense wealth. He is a very blessed man in spite of himself and in spite of his uncle Laban. 20 years ago, remember he'd spent the night in the wilderness sleeping on a rock for a pillow, Bethel. Remember that? Bethel. Angels were ascending and descending on a stairway between earth and heaven. This was a, a real but surrealistic dream where God revealed himself to Jacob and blessed him as he was leaving the land of promise. Abraham's blessing would extend to even Jacob, and Jacob would 
one day return back to the promised land. God would be present. Remember, God's presence would be there to protect and to provide for Jacob. That's what the blessing looked like. And here he is again. God has been faithful. He is just about to return. And as we're going to find out in our text, we're going to discover that once again, like on the way out, there are angels again on the way in. The word there for these angels is the same as it was for Bethel. So we know it's a similar appearance, but difference. It looks more like in First, uh, in first Chronicles 12, where there was a, a large encampment, a vast number of angels. Probably, he had a pretty great group, if you, if you a large group, a camp, if you will, if you take all of his livestock and servants. But this was a greater camp, and it was angels. And we're going to discover that when he saw these angels, the Bible doesn't give a lot of data, but when he saw them, he figured out, God's meeting me on my way in, and the angels are there, and there's a great camp of them. There's my camp and their camp. So he names the place two camps. And for us, that reminds us, too, that God, God constantly reveals unseen realities to give him, and he gives us courage for the trials that lie ahead. Remember Jesus in the garden? He went back to his disciples on more than one occasion and awakened them to remind them to pray because things were coming. They didn't know, know that Judas was marching up the hill with, with a small army of priests, temple police, and Roman soldiers. Jesus warned his disciples consistently three different times to tell them, by the way, guys, when he was in the height of his popularity, by the way, guys, I'm, I'm going to die, but let me tell you, here's what's going to happen. God shows us these concrete, certain realities to prepare us when he allows painful trials in our lives that are ahead. Peter with persecution, as we study through 1 Peter, we always see God doing that. But here, back to our story, as it progresses, we discover that Jacob, <laughs> I love Jacob, I see me. Jacob continues to be the object of God's relentless grace, as one author called it, and intrusive and tenacious, a contending. Have you ever thought about that? A contending. James says the Spirit's in you. He's jealous for you. Paul says in Galatians, he doesn't let you do what you want to do. A contending, renovating, transforming grace. A stubborn love that does not ever, ever, ever let go. It does not give in. It does not take no for an answer. What good news! Until God is finished conforming us into the moral image of his son. Now, let's look at our text this morning. Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way. Verse 1, I'm reading out of ESV. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Manaim. And God sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau 
and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. that He may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ooze and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And those that are ahead of you, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They're a present sent to my Lord, Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. And he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel and he, for saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day, the people of Israel did not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because 
he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Wow. Jacob decides to inform his brother that he has returned. Now Jacob may or may not have known if his father was dead. Now, by the way, he wasn't dead, but we don't know if Jacob knew that or didn't know that as he returned. He also had no, <laughs> he, he would have had no idea that if dad had died, if Esau had by default, because Jacob wasn't around, inherited all his father's wealth. Jacob also had no reason to tell Esau because Esau did not stand in his way. Esau was, was not on the road where he was heading. Esau was very far south of that. So it appears that Jacob seemed to be motivated by a genuine change of heart. There wasn't a lot of external motivation. It was an inward thing. Esau was not near where he was headed. Jacob didn't need his material inheritance. No, it seems that Jacob, who now knew, remember, he knew firsthand what it was to be cheated, what it was to be manipulated, what it was like to be deceived. Jacob wanted to make amends. So what does he do? On his own initiative, he sends word to Esau, a message containing some pretty self-effacing language. He was not returning to be over Esau, your servant Jacob, my Lord Esau. He had not been in hiding. He told him, I've been with Uncle Laban these 20 years at a known location. So he wasn't returning to Lord. He wasn't hiding. He wasn't returning for, remember, his two-thirds share of the inheritance? No, he immediately told him, I'm very rich without it. I don't need your inheritance. I've got one thing on my mind. I want to make amends. He sends his servants with that message. They return, and Jacob's hopes were totally trashed when he received word that his big brother, remember, big in every sense of the word, was coming to meet him. And he was bringing along 400 friends as well. 400 men. The thing that Jacob had dreaded was about to happen. Time had not healed the wounds. 20 years ago, remember, Esau had planned to kill Jacob for his deception. And now Jacob hears that Esau is heading his way with a small army of 400 men. In that day, that was a small mercenary army. So Jacob had one thing, fear. <laughs> so what does Jacob do? He takes desperate measures. And we're going to learn as we read this that God allows scary and difficult trials to build our faith and to deepen our trust in God and his desire and God and his ability to care for us. Oh, we're going to enjoy Jacob's prayer. He has grown. Jacob prays. What does he do? What's his first desperate measure? He prays. He's grown. He prays a desperate and passionate prayer. He asks. He asks only for what God has already promised him. To fulfill the covenant with Abraham and to grant what he promised to him directly, directly, to do him good and to protect him and his family. And he reminds God, again, of his steadfast love and of God's faithfulness to Jacob. He admits in reminding that, he's admitting he does not merit any of God's kindness. No. In fact, he is aware. He is unworthy. He is in need of God's favor 
and grace. 20 years has matured Jacob's faith. Oh, but he's still a man of quick action. The text does not approve or disapprove of his next action. We don't know if what he did was based on totally on faith or faith mixed with fear or totally on fear. The text doesn't tell us, but one thing we do find out that when there's no doubt when Jacob and Esau were reconciled next week when Matt covers that, it's going to be an answer to this desperate prayer, not his outstanding plan. Oh no, it's a trophy to God's grace. But as desperation and quick planning go, it was pure Jacob, pure brilliance. Over 550 animals, more than an entire town would have sent to a conquering king for tribute. Jacob was repentant though, and Jacob was frightened, and Jacob was rich, and they all came together in five waves of gifts. 220 goats, 220 sheep and rams. Remember, camels were the Maserati of the day. 30 camels with their young. 50 cows and bulls and 30 donkeys. He spaced them so that as Esau would, would be amazed and would ask and would inspect and talk to the servants just when he's done more dust on the horizon, and here comes another one. And then go through it again, and another one. So the five ways of animals and servants, they head off into the night. But Jacob is not done. He quickly moves his family, his servants, his possessions, his livestock, everything he has across a raving and, and across, excuse me, across a ravine. This is, he's in a mountainous area. He's got to take them at night. They didn't have flashlights down the ravine, across a swiftly moving stream. Kids, herds, everything. He wants to get some distance. He does both camps. How ironic. He sees his camp and God's camp. How ironic now. There's two camps, and it's just his two. Is he aware that God's angels are still encamped about those who fear him, as the psalmist says. But he splits them into both camps in case one is captured or slaughtered, the other one can escape. He puts both camps over the water. Jacob settles down to a long and lonely night, or what's left of it. There's a short night ahead of him in the mountain cold to await the morning. I'm sure he can't sleep. He's scared to death. He's waiting. Jacob, to his credit, Unlike the old Jacob, he's beginning to morph. He's the first one. Everybody's behind him. He's going to be the first one to meet his brother Esau. Now, if he wasn't tired, tired and scared enough already, can you imagine how he jumped out of his skin? It's pitch black, and a hand puts on his wrist, grabs him, and begins to fight him. A silent and strong man attacked him with his bare hands. And Jacob begins the ultimate wrestling match where he's going to discover we only win when we lose. For those of you who can remember what it was like when you were eight, or those of you who can remember what it's like to have an eight-year-old son, how does God wrestle with Jacob? Think how a father wrestles with a son. It's a draw. The boy is just doing everything he can in all of his strength, and Dad could just crush him in a New York second. But Dad lets it be a draw because Dad's got a different goal in mind. Dad wants to show the son something, not about his strength, 
but about the son's dependence. Oh, it's a draw until daybreak. It's just about daybreak. Jacob is just not giving in. As dawn approaches, God wants Jacob to let him go. Why? So that he could let Jacob live. Remember Moses in Exodus? If you see my face, you'll die. I'm fighting you. I'm condescending to to come in the form of a man and wrestle with you to teach you something. I'm condescending to let you resist me because I am so for you. I'm not going to let go. My grace is contending with you. But it's going to be daylight soon, and you're going to know who this is. And if you see my face, you're dead because you can't see my face and live. So you need to let me go. The man touches his hip and dislocates it. And then he asks Jacob to release him. Jacob gets it. What has just happened? Darkness, hip. You can imagine the dislocated hip immediately, supernaturally, because of a single touch. Ah! Will you let me go? It's daylight. He's in pain, and now he's just grabbing like a, like a rag doll. But Jacob understands the situation. He clings for dear life, and he is now not looking to overcome. He is asking for a blessing. God asks Jacob his name. Adam, where are you? Jacob, who are you? God already knew, but God wanted Jacob to know something. Jacob acknowledges his name, and he knew what his name meant. What's your name, son? I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a manipulator. I'm a liar. I trust in my own ability and my own strength. I'm not letting you go. What does God do? He didn't say, yeah, that's right. You're nuked. Go to hell. Let the earth open. No. God exercises a gracious, wonderful, powerful authority over Jacob. He changes his name. Remember Adam and Eve, Adam and the animals? When you name someone or something, you are exercising authority. And Jacob submitted to that and was known as Israel the rest of his life. He blesses Jacob. He exercises gracious authority, and he announces something to Jacob. You have a new character and a new identity. Jacob is so profoundly affected by this encounter. He's been face to face with God, and he's lived. What does Jacob do? He names the place, face of God. In the daylight, Jacob now finds himself totally alone again, but no, it's not Jacob. It's Israel. Israel, the name of God, El. Israel finds himself alone and alive, bruised, bleeding, exhausted, tattered clothes, dirt and grime everywhere, and dragging from a dislocated hip a very painful leg behind him, smiling with every step. Why? Because he's Israel. That, may, that, that name means God fights or you have fought with God. What a reminder of God's grace. You fought with God 
and lived. You fought with God, came to an end of yourself, hung on for dear life, and God blessed you. You fought with God. (laughs) Israel, so you fought with God, is standing at face of God, and he's got to cross back over the river to get his family, and the river means twist or wrestle. Everything about him reminds him of this event. Jacob's, Jacob's entire life has been characterized by grasping and by struggle. His brother, his father, even his father-in-law, and he discovers that in all the struggle, it's always been grasping and struggling with God. And God shows up in person and intimately contends with Jacob. Like with Moses in Exodus 4, God opposes Jacob just as, now think of this, it's important us as believers, God himself opposes Jacob as Jacob is engaged in obeying God. He was entering the land like he was told to do, like he was promised. He has been changing But you know what? Jacob can't enter that land. He's bringing Jacob baggage with him. He must stop the struggle, stop the grasping, and know that he can no longer be the poster child of self-sufficiency. Jacob discovers in this encounter, finally, that he's powerless and he's dependent. Jacob discovers a tenacious and crippling grace. Jacob becomes Israel. Striving and being blessed in spite of it is over. He now knows you have to lose to win. A life of powerful weakness has begun. A new name indicating a new grace with a new status and a new identity and a new direction and a new character. God is transforming him from the inside out. Self-sufficiency was fading like the night. Humble dependence was dawning like the day. Mercy was new that morning because great was God's faithfulness, though painful and self-disclosing. This relentless grace, this intrusive, tenacious, contending, renovating, stubborn grace, grace that contends and won't let go, grace that resists so that you can enter into more blessing, grace that does not ever take no for an answer, grace that gives you a new name, exercises authority, and blesses you grace that gives you a limp as a reminder that you are a trophy of God's grace. Can't you hear the echo of Hebrews? God disciplines those he loves. You don't only get disciplined because you're disobeying. Jacob was obedient but he still needed to see something about himself. 
That's how he limped with a smile on his face because he should have been dead. Jacob will never forget his encounter with God. New Testament parallel, what's the point for us? It's, <laughs> it's pretty simple. I was dead in my transgressions and sin, Ephesians tells me, without hope and without God in the world. I didn't want God, I didn't love God, I was resisting God. God was still blessing me. He was letting me draw the next breath. His patient kindness was leading me to repentance. I was being blessed while I was an enemy. I didn't get what I deserved. And then God's tenacious, intervening, intrusive, relentless, and I won't take no grace for an answer, entered my soul, will have to be mine at 15. And I gave it up and came to an end of myself and realized, okay. If you're not a follower of Christ, I would invite you to learn from Jacob and, and cling to Christ and what he's done for you on the cross to repent of your sins and allow the Lord. He, he is after you because he loves you. And if you're hearing my voice, he's after you. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, who are Christians, who are Christians, don't you realize the Jacob's in the room? Jacob had, you're going to find out next chapter, Jacob wasn't suddenly like, you know, he, he didn't go from Jacob to Israel to Saint Israel. He's still going to have a pecking order. You're still going to find out which wife and kid he likes the best. I mean, it's all about to happen next chapter. Stay tuned. Popcorn ahead. It's going to happen. Jacob's not Jacob anymore. But you know what? He had to grow up into the name God gave him. You, if you are a Christian, have been given a new nature. You have a new identity. You are in union with Christ. You were Jacob. You are now Israel. You were a pagan. You are now a Christian. You bear the name of Christ. You are outside the camp. You're now one of God's children. And you too and me too we get to become what he's already declared us to be. We get to grow up into that name. But don't ever confuse justification. Here's your new name, your new direction, your new identity. My stubborn, tenacious grace has finally and completely to never go back changed you with you've got to grow and you've got to depend on him. And you're still going to have your little Jacob moments. It's funny, in the Old Testament, you'll find the nation of Israel is referred to as Jacob or Israel based on how they respond to God. And if you've had, or if you currently are aware, or if you're about to receive a limp, because God's after you to come to an end of yourself and self-sufficiency, remember, limp with a smile on your face if you get who's contending with you and if you understand why 
He resists you because he wants to he wants to give you what he's promised but you can't be dragging that weight behind you he wants to cut that off so you can enter in without all that he loves you and he will transform you from the inside out but he loves you enough to discipline you too. He's just not like any father I've ever known. <laughs> Certainly not like this dad. Let's leave before we transition to scriptures. We talked about Hebrews. Here's some ones you remember. Philippians 1, 6 and 2, 13. <laughs> we win only when we lose. Paul says, I am sure of this, that that same God who wrestled with Jacob who began a good work in you, will, 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 will bring it to completion. The day of Christ, and we should be cowering out of fear. God says, oh no, at the day of Christ, it'll be a great day for you because God on that day will bring it to completion. Then he goes on in the next chapter talking about something else and he reminds us as we strive and struggle to grow, for it's God who works in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Israel, grow up into the new name. Why? Because God declared it. God bless you. God went after you. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work. He changes my head and my heart for God's good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, these confusing verses sometimes you have such a wonderful meaning in. And Lord, thank you. You have saved us. <laughs> Lord, the old song, Amazing Grace, through many trials. It was grace that brought me here. It was grace that taught my heart to fear to begin with. It's grace that led me to you. And grace will bring me all the way home. Lord, what you've begun, you'll complete. And we get to grow up into our new identity, into our new name. And you promise you'll accomplish all of that. We have a new direction. So Lord, like Jacob will do in the future, he can face trial, he can face temptation, he can face you, he can face Esau, because he's secure in you. And you're at work in him. Lord, let us have that same faith, and that same trust, and that same knowledge. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.